Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin, the Director of the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society at the University of New South Wales campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series. It is a production of the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra, in partnership with the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, the Submarine Institute of Australia and the Sea Power Centre Australia. In 1940, Colonel Arthur Graham Butler, medical officer, Gallipoli veteran, and author of the history of the Australian, medical, uh, Australian military medical services in World War I, described how the role of medical, military medical health services not only includes alleviating suffering by treating ill and injured personnel, but also enabling operational capability by maximising their health and well-being. And if this isn't possible, then facilitating their return to the civilian community. This, the first of a two-part episode, will describe how Navy's health services developed these roles, beginning with its colonial naval predecessors until the end of World War II. The second part of this podcast will describe how these roles expanded after World War II. Now, to explore this issue today, I'm joined by Commodore Mike Dowson, who served as a permanent Navy dental officer for over 30 years and as Director General Navy Health Services before retiring in 1997. He has written extensively about the early history of the RAN Health Services. I'm also joined by Commander Neil Westfarland, who served as a permanent Navy medical officer for 29 years before transferring to the reserve in 2016. He has likewise written extensively on the Navy Health Services. Welcome to you both. Okay. Neil, could I start with you? Could I get you to describe for us how the RAN Health Services began? Uh, thanks, Rob. Uh, well, Victoria started the, the first colonial naval force in 1865, and that was followed by uh, New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia. Uh, Dr Samuel Naggs um, arguably became the first um, Australian Navy medical officer when he was appointed to the New South Wales Naval Brigade in 1872. By 1900, the colonial naval forces had 22 part-time medical officers between them, of whom three served in China uh, during the uh, Boxer Rebellion. The colonial navies were amalgamated into the Commonwealth Naval Forces in 1901, but they remained state-based until the RAN was established in 1911. The first permanent RAN medical officer was the then Staff Surgeon Alexander Kaur. He was appointed in 1912, and by the outbreak of World War I, he'd been joined by another six medical officers and a small pool of ex-RN medical sailors uh, with another 12 medical sailors under training. Well, given this background, Mike, can I ask you to describe the RN health services between the formation of the RN and uh, up to and including World War I? Well, I think beginning of the First World War saw uh, our Navy quite um, well prepared. The year before, um, a battle cruiser and light cruisers and destroyers and submarines had arrived in Australia, having been built in England. They'd been worked up and uh, their ship's companies, a combination of um, Royal Navy on loan and Australians, uh, were um, pretty well organised when war broke out. As far as the medical staff, um, the medical officers in the RAN were um, Australians and, and quite young. In general, 
medical services are modelled on those of the Royal Navy and up to 10 sick berth attendants and two medical officers staffed um, the battleship. Some of the smaller ships went without. The first action by Australia was to send a naval force to Rabaul, hoping to find elements of the German Navy's East Asia squadron. But when they arrived, they weren't there, so the force returned to Australia. This was followed by a Navy-led force that captured German New Guinea, resulting in the first Australian casualties of the war. To support a possible sea encounter with the German squadron and to support operations ashore, the Navy commandeered an Australian coastal ship, the Grand Tala, belonging to the Adelaide Steamship Company, and in the space of about three weeks, transformed her into a 250-bed hospital ship, complete with an operating theatre. This couldn't be done uh, but for the decision of the Royal Navy some years before to pre-position stores for potential hospital ships in seven other locations around the world, and Sydney was one of those. Nevertheless, it was a remarkable achievement to equip and man a ship like that in short time. Um, the Grand Tala, uh, after supporting the landings in uh, Rabaul, followed the fleet to Suva. And once it had been established that the German squadron was headed to east to South America, she returned to Sydney and returned to her owners. Um, Grand Tala remains the only hospital ship that the Navy ever operated. It was thought at one stage that it could be used as a hospital ship uh, supporting forces in, in uh, Europe, but the problem was that her water generating capacity wasn't large enough to withstand um, longer voyages. As a, as a merchant ship, she was just used on the Australian coastal run. It just just to clarify that the, we've there've been lots of uh, Australia's had uh, quite a few hospital ships, um, but the point to make is that um, all the other hospital ships were essentially run by the army, and their primary purpose was to get um, ill and injured uh, people back to Australia, not to support fleet operations the way that we use Grantala. So there's a little piece of uh, Royal Australian Naval medical service history that's connected to the Sydney Emden action. Can you tell us about that, Mike? Yeah, it's not just a Australian naval medical history, it's uh, the aftermath of the Sydney Emden action and the need to care for the wounded, the majority of which were uh, Germans, in fact, 69 Germans that survived the action were transferred to HMAS Sydney after the battle, uh, and they had to be cared for um, in a ship that had just been through a major action with uh, a lot of essential services not working and with only uh, a minimal medical staff. Um, the ship carried two doctors, um, both Australians who'd only graduated some years before, uh, but in terms of supporting staff to manage and care for 
those badly injured um, survivors who uh, had initial surgical treatment. Most of that was done by ship's company. Um, most of these survivors were uh, on the upper deck, uh, covered by uh, tarpaulin, um, and they were nursed by teams of sailors under the leadership of the, the chaplain. And it was about a four-day uh, journey to get back to Colombo, which was their nearest major facility that could handle uh, casualties of that type. Um, in terms of the support, one of the Emden's medical officers survived the action. And when he came on board, he uh, assisted in, in, in surgery, which carried on for about 30 hours non-stop. In fact, in the account of the uh, treatment of the battle casualties, uh, one stage surgeon Darby noticed that uh, SBA Mullins had collapsed um, on top of the patient. And so it was suggested he should go uh, up on the upper deck for about 15 minutes, but, uh, and then came back and continued. The fact that they were working in a, not a dedicated sick bay, but in the old petty officer's bathroom with no supply of fresh water and actually water uh, on the deck below them and continuing was quite a feat in itself. In fact, uh, after about 20 hours, it was noted that they all felt that they needed a bit of a rest. So it described by Surgeon Darby, he said, so they had a cup of brothel and a brandy each 15 minutes break and then continued their work. Um, so even these days in a, in a modern ship to treat that number of patients with a very high survival rate was, would be a feat now. But to do it then in a ship going through the tropics, limited ventilation with no fresh water uh, and only the basic amount of um, steril uh, sterilising facilities and things like that would be an, a, a challenge now. Um, in, in fact, there was an International Journal of Emergency Surgery uh, edition that I saw about three years ago, and someone had picked up the details of that, um, and it was published uh, recognising what a feat that was. I think there's a couple of other things about the, the action as well. You've got to remember that this was the um, pre-antibiotic era, so uh, the risk of uh, infection was um, uh, quite substantial. Um, and I also think, as, as Mike alluded to, uh, the other sort of recurring theme that Emden started was that uh, it can actually take quite some time to get uh, patients off a ship even today. Uh, we've got helicopters that can do that, thing now, but if the ship's operating outside helicopter range, you've got to wait until the ship gets close enough to fly the patients off. And these days, there was no option for that, was there? No. <laughs> but even these days, you might have a, a helicopter available, but it's going to be tasked for much more important roles. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And uh, that was instanced in World War II, when HMAS Australia suffered a lot of injuries from kamikaze attacks 
but it was, I think, six or seven days before they could be transferred because the ship was in action. There were, uh, they, uh, there were Japanese submarines operating the area. So even now, that would be a, a problem. Mike, what about Gallipoli? Any involvement RN Health Services in Gallipoli? Yeah, it was interesting that um, there wasn't an involvement and people don't realise that. But uh, it came about with the formation of the RAN bridging team. And of course, as people know, that was designed to uh, go and serve on the Western Front. Uh, but like other um, members of the uh, army, they ended up uh, at Gallipoli because they had been based before in Cairo. So we had the bridging team uh, with capability and they headed off to Suvla Bay and they constructed the wharf works there. But of course, they had a medical officer with them um, and that was Staff Surgeon Edward Morris. Uh, it also included a, a veterinary surgeon, which would be the only um, time ever that the Royal Australian Navy had a veterinary surgeon. Of course, he was there to care for the mules, which were part of the mule train. And when it was discovered that the bridging train was not to be used in the Western Front, the Navy loaned the veterinary officer um, to the British Army and he served the rest of the time on the uh, Western Front until coming back in about 1916. Goodness. Can you tell us a bit about Surgeon Morris? Apparently he had some teeth problems. Yeah, well, again, it's an example of um, dental health being important to have a, a healthy fighting force. In this case, Surgeon Morris um, was a bit older than the rest, but in the end, uh, he was medically discharged from the RAN, so his service in Gallipoli was cut short. But the reason for his discharge was his poor dental condition. And that's uh, an ongoing sort of recurring theme, I guess, was that um, uh, Navy entrants uh, had to be dentally fit when they came into entry, once they came, were on entry, but once they'd been accepted, um, they received um, fairly comprehensive dental treatment from uh, contract civilians. Um, that's also in contrast to the uh, to the Australian Army, uh, who were not able to provide uh, dental services in the period before the war. Uh, Navy had civilian dentists for a couple of days a week in the training ship at Tangira, uh, the Naval College at uh, Jervis Bay and at the Williamstown Naval Depot. Um, there was some lobbying by the State Dental Association of Victoria to recruit a uniformed dental officer for service in the fleet, but it was delayed by uh, the outbreak of the war and the disappearance of all the ships overseas to the UK. Um, even so, um, the lack of dental of, of treatment, bearing in mind that people's teeth were pretty bad uh, at that time and for many years afterwards, uh, the captain of Australia asked for a dental officer and um, in 1918, surgeon dentist um, uh, Atwell joined the ship um, in the Firth of Forth and in that case, he not only became the first 
permanent dental officer in the RAN. He was actually the first um, permanent uh, dental officer in uh, any Commonwealth Navy, including the UK Navy. Uh, that's despite the fact that the US had had a uh, uniform dental corps in their navy since 1911, uh, although it's possible that the uh, visit of the USN Great White Fleet to Australia in, uh, had uh, prompted um, the uh, interest of the local um, dental cities. So did the Royal Australian Navy Health Services uh, play any role in the uh, 1980 influenza? pandemic? Yeah, of course, the influenza, that uh, epidemic could swept around the world. Um, in the latter part of 1918, uh, and eventually came to the Pacific area, uh, resulted in the ADF's first humanitarian mission. What had happened was that a merchant ship had left Auckland bound for Suva, uh, and quarantine regulations in New Zealand about that time weren't particularly sophisticated. So by the time the ship arrived in Suva, there were active cases of influenza which swept through the local native population. Uh, it also, uh, because of inter-island traffic, uh, that epidemic uh, went as far as Tonga, and, and the, why it uh, spread rapidly was the local population had no um, inherent uh, immunity from flu. So the Governor-General uh, of New Zealand sent a message to the Governor-General of Australia requesting that Australia could provide help to cope with that epidemic. There weren't enough medical officers available, uh, civilian medical officers in New Zealand to be sent overseas to help that. So in a short space of time, uh, a combined naval and army force was sent to Suva to help that, uh, uh, that influenza epidemic. So after a bit of a baptism by fire in World War I, Neil, can you talk about the RN health services in the interwar period between World War I and World War II? Uh, well, thank you. Uh, after the war, um, the the way that it operated was that uh, uh, anybody who needed uh, hospital treatment was was accommodated in the Caulfield Repat Hospital in Melbourne, or in a dedicated Navy ward at uh, St Vincent's Hospital in Paddington, uh, which later moved to the Prince of Wales Hospital in uh, Randwick. Uh, when uh, the Williamstown Naval uh, depot closed in 1920 with the opening of um, the Flinders uh, Naval Depot. Uh, we had our own hospital um, at uh, Cerberus. Um, we had had um, a Director General of Navy Medical Services since 1916. Um, the first Australian, it was part of the overall Australianisation that happened over the next, uh, the first half century of the Navy. We got in fairly early. We had our first Australian um, DG uh, medical services in 1927. And he started a very slow process of Australianising our health services to suit the local conditions. Essentially, uh, the fact that, you know, we're a very small Navy in a very large part of the world. 
Um, most of the deployments we did during that time were around the Australian coast with the occasional extended deployment to the MED and the UK. Uh, when we were doing the latter, the, we came under uh, the RN control and the medical officers on those ships basically used the RN's medical services. Were there any attempts in the interwar period, as we've seen subsequently as well, to amalgamate the service medical uh, establishments? Um, there was a push fairly early uh, after the end of the war, um, generally pushed uh, by um, the, the then Director General Army Health Services was um, uh, Major General uh, Neville House, uh, VC. Um, Naval Board first expressed its concerns in 1920. Things didn't go any further for the moment. It came up again in 1922. And uh, it was a, a report by the medical officers of all three services saw no great difficulty in amalgamating the health services provided all of the services were amalgamated themselves, rather like what happened in Canada from 1968. And there was something in 1925, a Royal Commission. Did we have a role there? Uh, yeah, the, the Royal Commission was uh, looking at um, health services uh, Australia-wide, so just the civilian bits there, but there was also a parts where it looked at uh, what was happening on the military side. So the then Director General uh, Medical Services, um, who was the last uh, RN guy, Surgeon Captain Gaia Phipps, uh, was called upon to give um, a evidence of the Royal Commission and the Royal Commission reported two opposed views. Phipps was supported by the former DG Army Medical Services and the Commonwealth um, Director General Health in advising that Naval Medical Services had to be kept separate and distinct because they were specially organised uh, and because their own special requirements and, and organisation. And also because of the need for commonality between the Australian and the British navies, which is you know part of the bigger picture of that anyway. The opposed view put forward by the then uh, DG Army Medical Services was in favour of uh, combination during peacetime, although even then he still thought it might be a bit different uh, in wartime. The thing to remember is that a century later from all this stuff is that you had to remember that the, the Army at that time was almost exclusively uh, a, a uh, part-time. There was uh, militia, they were, weren't... Uh, uh, they didn't serve outside Australia. As far as the Air Force was concerned, uh, the um, World War I Australian Flying Corps had been part of the Army until the uh, formation of the Royal Australian Air Force in 1921. Even then, the Army maintained control of the Air Force Health Services uh, through a, a, a part-time squadron leader, later Wing Commander, until 1940. But we're talking about um, you know, a part-time medical officer looking after, very early in the piece, only three or four hundred people at one base. So what that would have meant if, if they had gone for amalgamation during the interwar period would have basically combined uh, a small number of Navy full-timers who routinely deployed overseas with an extremely large number of almost exclusively part-time Army Hill staff and a tiny number of part-time RAFIs who, who didn't deploy. So why did it matter? What were, the, uh, what were the key arguments to say that a Naval Health Service had to retain a, a distinct capability? Well, perhaps if I interject for a minute there, um, there's a lot more to running and organising a, a health service than just the 
provision of medical staff. Um, for example, someone's got to make decisions about what stores are required. Uh, and one of the far-reaching decisions was before the Second World War was that Navy should establish its own medical stores system. And that paid off in New Guinea where uh, there were pre-positioned stores dedicated to Navy ships. But even what sort of material um, should be in those medical stores? Even a simple example of the problem of moving a injured sailor from one deck to another. And that can't be done by a normal army pattern stretcher. Mm. So there's lots of specific examples that if you haven't got a naval background, you might uh, miss out on some essential element. Mm. The, um, the, 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 I guess the way I'd, I'd look at it is that uh, clearly all three uh, health services have to provide treatment services. Um, but uh, at that time, in the interwar period, uh, neither Army nor RAF had to consider the operational capability issues related to people who deployed, who became ill or injured, whereas we had to because we had ships overseas or, or at sea uh, all the time in an era where aeromedical evacuation really wasn't an option. So uh, looking for example, if you had a, a hypothetical rubella outbreak in a part-time army battalion during the 1930s, um, it, A, it, wouldn't have, it was highly unlikely to affect every six, you know, all of the six or 700 people because they were spread out through the district that the, they came from. Uh, it might have entailed some training, but that's about it. Um, however, the same sort of hypothetical outbreak at an Air Force base might have, might have uh, restricted some flying, but, but none of the flying they were doing was, was considered operational the way that it is now. Um, yet, an actual rubella, and then followed by mumps outbreak aboard uh, Sydney 2 in the Mediterranean in 1936, um, actually stopped her from participating in sanctions enforcement against the Italians during their war with uh, modern um, Ethiopia. So it's those sorts of differences that, that made us uh, sort of um, have to stand out in terms of how we did business compared to the other two services. Arguably, some of that stuff hasn't changed. <laughs> Well, indeed, and that brings us quite <coughs> conveniently up to uh, the beginning of uh, World War Two, and we know that we have separate medical services with some uh, commonalities, but still maintaining their independent uh, existence. So, in August 1939, Australia enters the war, of course, uh, with uh, with Great Britain against Germany and the Axis powers. Can you describe, Mike, the RN's health services at this point, prior to Japan's entry into World War Two? Well, I think the experience of Navy's health services mirrored that of the, the Navy as a whole. Uh, during the intervening period, the Navy had acquired modern cruisers uh, and had been operating in the Mediterranean with, um, with a, uh, an RAN cruiser um, permanently part of the British Mediterranean fleet. So they had a lot of experience of working together and in fact, at the outbreak of war, the Navy had 19 medical officers and eight dental officers, the majority of those being at sea. They were supported by uh, medical dental sailors uh, and they were in generally 
well-trained. Um, the Director of Medical Services then had the foresight that if you needed experienced medical sailors, they should be gain that experience by being loaned to major uh, civil hospitals. In that case, it was the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. And there was a, I'd say, a very good core of permanent naval health services staff uh, at the outbreak of, uh, of World War II. What about a nursing service? Did we have one? Didn't have one in the years before, um, but once we got involved in a larger conflict with need for um, care of patients in uh, a major hospital, and at that time Flinders Naval Hospital was uh, quite um, sophisticated, um, but the need to provide nursing, nursing sisters were twofold. One, to supervise the training of sick bird sailors uh, so that when they went to sea they were capable, but also to assist in the uh, care, the nursing care of a large resident population. And Cerberus uh, at the outbreak of uh, Second World War enlarged to train um, sailors. Some of those sailors obviously got sick. They had to be nursed in that location. So there's quite a big demand. And that's why a separate Royal Australian Naval Nursing Service was formed in 1942. Okay. I was going to say that uh, we, the, w there wasn't a formal Naval Nursing Service in the interwar period, but uh, there was a lot. There, there was a couple, one or two um, civilian nurses at uh, places like um, uh, the Naval College and um, we had uh, and and um, and they, I guess they sort of were a bit sort of matronly stuff for a whole bunch of, of basically young kids among other things um, but Mike is right the the we had a lot of people coming home uh, with illness and injury after deployments um, and uh, we had to uh, establish a nursing service to um, train the medics and also to look after the guys that were coming back home and, and the as well as the in-house population. So Mike, a, a quick question, just briefly before we move on to uh, the entry of Japan into the Second World War. Uh, a previous podcast, we've dealt with the Tobruk Ferry Run. Were there any naval health service uh, actions in relation to the Tobruk Ferry Run? Well, as you know, the, the Navy involvement in the Tobruk Ferry Run was an essential, which was part of, of that support of the Tobruk garrison. And the, the, the ships of the scrap iron flotilla uh, had medical staff, not all had a medical officer, uh, but they were able to care for uh, a lot of the army wounded that were being evacuated from Tobruk. And again, in quite primitive conditions, most of those uh, army casualties were nursed on the upper deck in pretty horrific sea conditions. But it was only an, a short overnight trip, but it was very demanding. Uh, there are instances of uh, uh, ships treating survivors from 
uh, other ships in, involved in that operation. And of course, we lost two ships in that, uh, one of which was HMAS Parramatta. Uh, and uh, the medical officer of Parramatta, uh, um, Charles Harrington, incidentally, the younger brother of um, Admiral Sir Hastings Harrington, uh, he was awarded DSC in the action um, of, of Parramatta. And the, the citation is quite interesting in that uh, because of the need to put everything you could to at attack German aircraft, the ship had added a captured Italian breeder um, anti-aircraft gun, and that was mounted in the stern together with a Vickers machine gun. The Vickers machine gun became the property of the medical department who uh, manned that gun. And in the action that saw the ultimate uh, sinking of, of Parramatta, uh, the medical staff, including the medical officer, had to be relieved from their duties from the Vickers gun to go down and treat casualties. Unfortunately, uh, the medical officer, Charles Harrington, didn't survive that action. Well, this brings us up to the entry of Japan into the World War II and, and obviously Naval Medical Services operating much closer to home. Neil, can you just give us a, a bit of a sense of the things that were going on? Well, I think, uh, I guess sort of the first point was that uh, by the end of 1941, the um, the sort of infrastructure, the development of stuff there was was uh, developing. Um, uh, although uh, the nursing service had to wait till the following year, so the 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 um, the main sort of bits was was just how busy um, the ships were operationally and how that impacted on the uh, on the medical departments of those ships. So, you know, for example, when Prince of Wales and Repulse were sunk off Malaya. A vampire was one of the escorts, and she rescued uh, two hundred odd uh, survivors from there uh, during the evacuation from Singapore. Um, Yarra uh, picked up eighteen hundred people from the troop ship Empress of Asia. Um, Yarra was incidentally being command was commanded by uh, the then uh, Commander Harrington at the time. Um, and um, Hobart was very busy as well. Uh, she came across a ship called the Nora Mola, a merchant ship um, which had been bombed by the Japanese and they treated uh, 28 casualties uh, uh, from her. Um, the uh, first air raid in Darwin was, quite, was uh, busy for the sick base st staff from uh, Swan, Platypus, Warrigo, and the shore establishment at, uh, at Melville. Um, one of the wards at, um, at uh, Naval Ward was wrecked and another one was, was uh, damaged, um, fortunately without any patient casualties. A lot of the rest of the war was um, taken up with uh, looking after our own um, injured um, from uh, our own battle casualties. So uh, Canberra's medical department uh, treated 24 shipmates uh, uh, after she was sunk out at uh, Save Our Island in August 1942. Uh, Hobart treated uh, seven casualties after she was uh, torpedoed off um, Espiru to Santo in uh, July 1943. Her medical officer was uh, one of 13 killed um, in, that, in that action. So, Neil, there were a total of 127 medical 
officers, 33 dental officers, seven ward master officers, and 77 nursing, physiotherapy, and other officers who served during World War II. In this small cadre, there were 43 awards, including a DSO, six DSCs, and seven DSMs. Can you just, as an example, we've already heard, of course, of Surgeon uh, Lieutenant Commander Charles Harrington. Can you just tell us about Surgeon Lieutenant Samuel Stenning? Um, Samuel Stenning uh, was, uh, he had a, a busy war. Uh, he uh, joined uh, at the beginning of the war. He uh, joined Waterhen uh, for the, uh, um, in the Mediterranean and was sunk uh, in 1940 on Waterhen. Uh, he was then sunk again uh, aboard Perth in uh, Sunder Strait in 1942. Can I just follow on with that? Because Sam Standing is one of my heroes, uh, and I've researched him a bit, as did um, Ian Fennigworth. Um, he said he survived two sinkings, but his work in the action um, of HMAS Perth in the Sunder Strait uh, earned him a DSC, and that of course wasn't acknowledged till after the war when the story of that uh, action came out. But he later, as a prisoner of war himself, uh, was the only naval medical officer to be a prisoner of war. And his work in the prisoner of war camps was largely unrecognised. Anecdotally, there was a memorial erected uh, in the Shrine of Remembrance grounds in Melbourne, uh, surmounted by a statue of that famous Army POW surgeon, Weary Dunlop. But below the statue were the names of all the other health services staff that administered to their fellow prisoners of war or that was what was supposed to be. I was a bit suspicious and went down to look at that statue to see if Sam Stenning's name was there. Uh, It wasn't. It'd been overlooked. But one of the pleasing things that I was involved with was to go uh, several years later to see Sam Stenning's name placed there uh, in the company with his extended family, and uh, it was the anniversary of uh, Willie Dunlop's birthday. It was a very well attended service, but at least he was recognised. He's not only a medical officer in the POW camp, in one camp he was the senior allied officer, and that was a camp of 2,000 prisoners. He was the guy in charge. Uh, it's also worth noting that his brother Malcolm um, also served in the Navy and he died aged 100 in uh, 2014. I had the pleasure of meeting him for his birthday. Well, Neil and Mike, this, uh, in order to wrap up this, yeah. uh, first, uh, this first podcast on the Naval uh, Medical Services, what does it all mean? Any uh, concluding thoughts? Mike? Well, I think that some of the lessons learnt from experiences in in that conflict have a lot of relevance today. Um, As examples, uh, if you read the account of the treatment of um, casualties in actions such as the Sondra Strait or um, 
the primary treatment for those casualties was given by first aid parties. Uh, and the training of uh, sailors that don't have a medical background but are trained uh, as uh, ship's medical emergency teams and, and placed in positions around the ship where they can be the first uh, providers of medical treatment was essential then and essential now. Um, a, a ship can't provide medical support in action just by the small number of actual professional um, health personnel. It's a, and that's something that I think is peculiar to the Navy and it's certainly applicable to today's Navy. Indeed. Just like fighting the ship, isn't it? Uh, yeah. First aid and health services are a whole of ship, whole of ship's company endeavour. I think the, the the lesson from that I think is, I mean, Mike has is has talked about stuff at the ship level, which I think is important. But I, I guess the the thoughts that occur to me is the relates to the plans to amalgamate the three health services during the interwar period. Uh, it would have made sense if the only thing uniformed health staff did was treat patients. Uh, and they certainly did do that. For example, uh, we looked after army casualties uh, during the evacuation from Greece and Crete, the siege of Tobruk. The colour of the uniform who actually provided the treatment doesn't actually matter. The issue relates to all the non-treatment medical things that uniform health staff do. Um, someone has to answer questions, provide advice, make things happen regarding things like, you know, how should they, the ships and shore establishments be staffed. Mike's already talked about the medical stores. How do you lay out a ship's sick bay with the limited space you've got? What training do the medics actually need? What should the standards be for recruits? What vaccinations are required? And it also comes right down to basics like, is this particular officer or sailor fit for sea for not or not? Uh, which is perfect, very easy if there's nothing wrong with them, but it's a little bit problematic if they're not. And all of that's fairly hard to get right, I, th I think, unless you've had actual seagoing experience and as I previously indicated, this didn't really matter for so much for the uh, other services during the interwar period uh, because uh, they didn't. And in Army's case, they were legally unable to uh, deploy overseas. Um, the only other bit is that we plagiarised a lot of this non-medical ex medical expertise from the RAN and as from the RN, sorry, we we plagiarised from them as much as we could. But that didn't really help after 1941 because we were operating in the Southwest Pacific and the RN wasn't, and uh, we had our own problems to contend with at that point. I think that prompted me to um, discuss operating in the Southwest Pacific. It meant we were really on our own. We were part of a larger United States force in occasions, but ships operated by themselves and independently and in operating from quite unsophisticated ports. And an example um, in the official history was a comment that the chief complaint from ships operating in the tropics was the absence of beer, mail and dentists. <laughs> um, and that was borne out by various medical officers' complaints that uh, coming into a port like uh, Trincomalee or some other base port, there were some shoreside dental uh, 
facilities, but they were absolutely overloaded. In the short space of time of a turnaround, it was impossible to get treatment. That led to a decision to put mobile dental teams uh, into destroyers, and that uh, the first ship to have that was uh, HMAS Nizam in 1944. Well, that leads us very neatly into what will become the second episode of this podcast, but that's all we have time for today. So please join us again for part two of this podcast on the Naval uh, Medical Services when we look forward once again to talking with Mike and Neil. Thank you.